Yoga in all its forms has been a support for me in my life through all the highs and lows. It's opened my mind and my heart in ways I never knew were possible. It has been a teacher, a taskmaster, and a friend. This podcast is an offering. I wish to share the teachings of yoga with you as a tool to help navigate life. Namaste and welcome. Welcome. I'm so happy you're here. I want to share with you one of my favorite sutras and one of the most challenging sutras in my experience. They say that there's a couple of sutras that you can focus on. So let's say you just want to take one sutra and focus on it for a lifetime. That is a practice. This would be one of the sutras that if you took this sutra and you practice this sutra for the rest of your life, that would be a very, very full beneficial experience of yoga. The sutra is Sutra 133. So the 33rd sutra in the first chapter of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. And I'm going to give you a couple of interpretations or translations that I like to work from, and then I'll do some riffing on this sutra. So from BKS Iyengar, he writes, through cultivation of friendliness, compassion, joy, and indifference to pleasure and pain, virtue and vice respectfully, the consciousness becomes favorably disposed, serene, and benevolent. From TK Desikachar, in daily life, we see people around who are happier than we are, people who are less happy, some may be doing praiseworthy things and others causing problems. Whatever may be our usual attitude towards such people and their actions, if we can be pleased with others who are happier than ourselves, compassionate towards those who are unhappy, joyful with those doing praiseworthy things and remain undisturbed by the errors of others, our mind will be very tranquil. And from Sri Swami Satchidananda, by cultivating attitudes of friendliness towards the happy, compassion for the unhappy, delight in the virtuous, and disregard toward the wicked, the mind stuff retains its undisturbed calmness. Okay, so what does all this mean? First of all, that last part from such a Dananda, the mind stuff retains its undisturbed calmness. That's what the goal of yoga is, right? To calm the fluctuations of the mind. Yoga is not setting out to make your mind calm because the inherent nature of the mind is actually calmness. The inherent nature of our being is serenity. But the mind is also of the nature to flit about and be easily distracted. And emotional reactivity is a reality of the nature of the mind as well. So we're trying to organize the emotional reactivity so that we can 
be reunited with the undisturbed calmness of the mind stuff. Okay, so when we look at Sutra 133, we also can see this is similar to the four immeasurables in Buddhism. Patanjali talks about these four traits as keys and locks. So he says, here's four locks and keys to your interpersonal relationships. And in the, in Buddhism, in the four measurables, they're also known as friendliness or, or they would be seen as loving kindness, uh, compassion, um, and again, virtuous acts of others and this wickedness, which we'll get into. But the idea is that Patanjali is teaching us that there is, uh, that there are keys to assist us with all people, all of our relationships, no matter what their locks are. So what does he mean by locks? He means their behaviors, right? He means their attitudes. So what do we say? Well, similar to what I just said, we cannot control the behaviors and actions and attitudes of others. The only power we have is over our emotional reactivity. So when we are able to study these keys and locks and observe them in our own life, that's what we're doing with the eight limbs. That's what we're doing with the obstacles we discussed. That's when we're looking at the side effects. It's, you know, it's, it's not enough to just want, what's the homework? What are the tools? What should I be doing? Well, yeah, I offer chanting and I offer the yoga asana practice. And there's a lot of things, journaling and meditation and all the things. There's so many tools, but you know, if you hand me a hammer, but I don't know that a hammer is used to insert a nail into a piece of wood, I just have a hammer in my hand, right? So I can share tools with everybody, but you need to know what are these tools applicable to? Well, that's your self-observation. That's your work. So I could do a laundry list of tools, which basically is what this podcast is comprised of in the sharing of the teachings of yoga as I experience them and interpret them. I'm offering you tools, but I can't tell you how to use them directly. You need to study yourself and you need to be brutally honest with yourself. That's the part I really can't stand. <laughs> I need to be brutally honest about me, about myself in my relationships. And I can't stand it, but it always feels better on the other side because I clear up some clutter about myself and then I can get back into the flow of life. Okay. So back to this sutra, what Patanjali is saying is people have behaviors and attitudes. Those are the locks, but here are four keys to the very four specific locks that come up in our interpersonal relationships. So in breaking these down, when we talk about friendship, all right, so cultivate attitudes of friendliness towards the happy. Oh, that does, that sounds so simple, right? Oh, thank you for starting off with an easy one. Not so fast, not so fast. Because to cultivate an attitude of friendliness towards someone that's happy 
oof, that doesn't always go that way, does it? No. For instance, this is the example I always give because it's a real example for me. And I have many, trust me, but this is a real example for me. A friend comes to me and says, guess what? I'm going to Paris. I'm going to France and I'm going to stay there for a month. I'm going to immerse myself in the culture and I'm going to enjoy the city of Paris and all it has to offer. And for those of you that don't know, I love France and I love many things French. Unfortunately, I have been to Paris a few times, but it never feels like enough. And my, my real favorite city in France now is Lyon, having visited there numerous times. And my beautiful daughter-in-law is from Lyon. Okay, all of that aside, I don't get to go to France as often as I'd like. So this friend comes and says, I'm leaving in October and I'm going to France and I'm gonna be in Paris. I'm really happy for that friend. Wow, wow, you're gonna have such a great time. And I'll be giving restaurant recommendations and I'll be, but I'd be lying if I didn't say, I'm not 100% happy because I want it to be me. So can I be 100% happy for that friend that's going to Paris without drawing up a little jealousy? Probably not, <laughs> probably not, but that's the work. So on the surface, to be friendly towards the happy sounds really easy, but in practice, it's actually not. Jealousy and different forms of envy come up in really most of these but definitely this first one. So when someone comes upon great fortune, they're having great luck in their life or something, you know, has happened for them. That's really wonderful. If, if by chance you're not in the greatest moment in your life, you know, definitely, Oh, I'm so happy for you. You're not necessarily smiling on the inside. So doesn't that cause a vritti when you are not capable of smiling 100% on the inside like you are on the outside for this friend's good fortune or happy experience? Doesn't that cause a fluctuation for you? It does. And that's your work. It's not about, I'm going to cover over that thing inside of me and I'm just going to like, plaster it up and shellac it and pretend it doesn't exist. No, it's about looking at it and saying, well, how am I not showing up for myself in my life that I can't recognize my good fortune and my blessings in the same light as this friends. And it's doing the excavation and the work to first of all, observe that you had that feeling or that moment or that kind of knee jerk reaction. She's going, then you call a friend, right? And you go, did you hear so-and-so's going to France? Yeah. Like that's what she should be doing. Don't you think she should be, you know, changing jobs? She's always unhappy in her job. Or did you notice that, you know, her, her bathroom is 30 years old. Don't you think she should be putting her, but whatever wicked things we start saying, you know, we start judging and criticizing and gossiping about the friend. Yuck. That is really icky. But we do it and we want to observe it and we want to alter that behavior. So noticing these locks, it's not always in the other person that we're noticing the locks to apply the key. 
I want to be as friendly on the outside and as happy on the outside, same in the inside. When a friend brings me their awesome good news, I don't want there to be a hiccup. And if there is, I need to observe it and unpack it and see why did I feel that thing? And a lot of times in this first one, you'll come up with, like I said, it's like you'll come up with a void in your own life. You'll come up with how you are not passionately curating and cultivating your own life. So that's the first one. The second one is compassion. So he says, Satchitananda says, compassion for the unhappy. Compassion for the unhappy is important to dissect because compassion can often look like pity. And compassion can be empathy without action. And that's not the kind of compassion that invites serenity of mind. That's the kind of compassion that actually drudges up judgment. So in other words, if you see someone that's, that's fallen on hard times, or if you pass someone who's homeless in the street or in your community, it's very possible that you'll at first feel, oh my gosh, I feel so bad for that person. And you'll have a pang of wanting to do something for them. But if you don't have the um, ability to give them the $20 in your wallet or the lunch you just bought for yourself because you need to eat or because you can't afford to offer cash in service for that person, you might actually find the narrative in your head switch to, how did they get there? Like what choices did they make that had them land on the street or made them, you know, bereft of money or where is their family? Like, did they do something? To, all of a sudden you'll start judging or criticizing a homeless person. And I know you're, you're listening to this episode and you're going oh, cringe. I've never done that. I've never done that. I don't judge people that have come upon hard times. Okay. I admire that, but sometimes our compassion switches to judgment or criticism or a looking the other way because we really haven't cultivated our own activism with a strength and a formidability that says, I see someone suffering and I have offerings for that person or that community. So we need to be able to do the work that says I can show up when I see someone suffering and not question or judge how they got to that point in their life. Like if somebody, if a friend comes to you and they're heartbroken, their, their marriage or their relationship, their, they, it's, busted up, it's blown up. And they're saying to you, you know, I don't know what happened. You know, we, we fell out of love or, you know, um, somebody cheated on somebody or there was betrayal or whatever, you know, you could have compassion for that person, but you might also be saying, huh, you know, if I really think about it, witnessing this person in this relationship, I saw a lot of things that they were doing wrong. 
And I'm making mental notes to myself to not do those things in my relationship. So you're judging this person, but you're presenting yourself as being compassionate. Compassion is not pity or judgment. It's action. It's activism. And, you know, um, if the very often compassion is challenging when it's somebody we don't like or when somebody has hurt you. So somebody that's in your life that you're not 100% fond of or they're in your life, but they have caused you harm, if they are suffering, it's going to be tough for you to pull up a well of compassion for them and subsequently act on that compassion. That the key here would be um, forgiveness. And I know that can be a controversial subject. It can be, well, what does forgiveness really mean? And we could unpack that, but, and we have in past episodes, but it could also be done more. Forgiveness for this full transformational experience of compassion to be realized, I find forgiveness is vital. And forgiveness is never condoning the behavior of others. Absolutely not. Forgiveness is unhooking yourself from their bad behavior. It's detaching yourself from their bad behavior so that you can heal. So you forgive the other person. You don't even have to tell the other person you forgave them but you are never condoning the bad behavior by forgiving. You're, if this is a word, you're unshackling or deshackling yourself from their bad behavior. And in doing so, you'll be able to cultivate a sense of equanimity because you'll see the soul and know that there is always the ability to exchange love as opposed to seeing the story and staying attached to the hurt. And again, that is, I'm just thinking of trauma and like a whole episode I could do around this. But here's the key to this key of compassion. We have to have compassion for ourselves and our own shortcomings. It's necessary in order for us to really have compassion for others. It can't just be lip service. We feel that activism at our core from a sense of passion because we are showing up as whole integrated selves because we've shown compassion and forgiveness to ourselves for the things that we've done. Um, that forgiveness, it's, it's a way of restoring our sense of belonging and not only to others, but to ourselves. And it enforces our sense of I amness and thereby deepens our connection to the collective. So the next one is, he says, Swami Satchananda says, delight in the virtuous. So the virtuous or virtuous acts of others would be witnessing people that are doing good in the world, witnessing people that are selflessly showing up and serving, um, whether it be volunteer work or charity work or whatever. And we see this, these virtuous deeds being done. Where would that be a lock and key? Well, 
again, it's judgment. And the judgment comes from feeling not enough in ourselves. So when, for instance, when we see someone doing virtuous deeds or acting in a virtuous manner, volunteering or offering their time or what have you, we obviously think highly of that person, right? We say, wow, that's, that's amazing. That is really no words can describe that, that you're doing that, or this person is out there doing that, or this group is out there doing that. But then there comes that second narrative that would be, I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing enough. I could be doing more. That comparison, right? It's in all of these. The comparison is the thief of joy, so says Teddy Roosevelt. So now you start off seeing this virtuous deed and this virtuous act of someone, and you immediately think, whoa, that is so great that they're out there in the world doing that. And then you switch to darkness. You switch to, I'm not enough. You, or you, uh, well, it can go really dark, right? Just, just, just like when we judge the person that we are really initially being compassionate about because we see their suffering, but then we turn the narrative into judgment. We see the virtuous act and then we turn the narrative into judgment. Usually the judgment in this one is on the self where we start to feel bad about it. Am I doing enough? Am I showing up enough? Uh, you know, I, 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 maybe I don't do enough in the day or maybe I'm not out there in the world enough. You know, this comes up for me in a very personal way. And I want to mention this because it's something that I'm just so proud of, really. And my sister, Barbara, whom I love dearly, she has for, I don't know how long, I want to say 10 or 12 years, but, but I could be wrong. It could be longer. She has given of her time selflessly by going to a children's hospital and spending time with terminally ill children, playing games with them, sharing stories with them, reading books to them, giving a break to the parents if they need to go get a cup of coffee or maybe have a good cry. And my sister has selflessly done this virtuous deed for years. I don't know how she does it. And I am in awe because I don't know that I could. And I haven't stepped into that flow of virtuosity and offering. It feels like I would break. And she goes to this summer camp to volunteer where terminally ill children, I believe can experience this camp with their siblings. And she just recently sent me a picture of her and this beautiful little girl who is terminally ill and they were spending the day together. And this girl had no surprise to me, had fallen in love with my sister. Kids love my sister. They always have. And when she shares with me, this experience that she has, I am, again, I am in awe and I admire her so much. And it makes me emotional to know that she steps into grace in this way, but I wouldn't be truthful if I didn't say that I have a moment of, or moments of why aren't I doing that? Or am I doing enough? 
this is so huge what she does and and am i enough okay so that's this third one that can truly cause um disturbed mind stuff where i start questioning my offerings in the world now I envy what she does, and I want to explain here uh, the term envy. There's toxic envy and there's inspirational envy. Envy is different than jealousy. Jealousy is usually a triangle uh, of jealousy between you know our romantic partners or friendships, but envy is two. Envy is toxic or inspirational. I envy what my sister does and it inspires me to check in with myself and see, am I doing enough? Can I serve in a bigger way? And that's what it does for me. And shout out to Barbara because she does so much in the way of service, in the way of seva, selfless service. And I'm so proud to be her sister. Take a look at that in yourself, these virtuous acts of others and how it makes you feel and what comes up for you around it. So all any of this is, is Fadyaya, self-study, it's observances. The last is wicked, right? So Swami Satchitananda says, disregard toward the wicked. Well, that's a tough one, right? That's a tough one because we want to remain undisturbed by the errors of others. So says TKV Desikachar. Um, People can be wicked. There are very famous wicked people and we have wicked people in our day-to-day -day life. And some of us are in relationship with people that have done wicked things or erred in a way that was very hurtful. We too, I'm sure, have been wicked at times. Whether it's the big wicked, like, dare I say, Hitler, and all of the wicked doings, or whether it be someone in your life that is behaving in a way that's really hurtful and dark. We want to remain equanimous. We want to have equanimity, or they even offer that we're neutral or we disregard. I'm not in love with the word indifferent, but I would probably have to unpack that more myself to see if it sits well with me. But we, we want to acknowledge the errors of others without the, the behaviors and errors creating disturbances in our mind stuff without them and this is a really hard one but it's the practice um and that's when we do we want to separate and that's where forgiveness comes in again right we want to separate the behavior from the person from the soul uh, see the soul ignore the story learn to love and you'll never regret it so says sean corn the practice is being able to neutralize your emotional reactivity to the wickedness of others. That's how you remain serene and peaceful. No one said it would be easy. Maya Angelou quote, be a rainbow in someone else's cloud. I love that.
and His Holiness, the 14th Dalai Lama. Through compassion, you find that all human beings are just like you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode on Sutra 1.33, as put forth by Patanjali, the four keys and locks to getting along in this world and rising above our own vrittis so that we can realize our pure potentiality. And Joseph Campbell says, it's not your purpose, it's your potential that you're uncovering. Follow your bliss. Hands together at the Heart Center. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be healthy and strong. May all beings be safe and protected. And may all beings live with ease. Namaste.